0: Welcome to the theology podcast it's great to have you here for a special saint patty's day edition and i'm going to let tom talk a little bit more about that and glenn of course because they've got a lot to say on that subject but uh, anyway i'm cr wiley i am a uh, a pastor i'm serving a church right now in vancouver washington uh right across the river from portland oregon and uh anyway So I'm in essentially a suburb of Portland, sort of like when I lived in Cambridge, uh, back in Boston, you know, you're, you're in effect in the sort of the, the Boston metro area. Uh, but it is a separate, uh, you know, it is a separate municipality that I am serving in. But anyway, enough about me along that line. I, I write some books and, um, I'm, uh, doing a lot of traveling. Uh, in fact, uh, Next week, uh, the week when this show is being uh, posted, I'll be back in New England. I'm going to be speaking at a men's conference at Singing Hills uh, Retreat Center up in New Hampshire, not too far from Woodstock, Vermont, and from Dartmouth, uh, the university, the uh, Ivy League school. So anyway, uh, if you hear, if you hear about this and you say, "Man, I didn't know Wiley was going to be back in New England," and you can go ahead and uh, Check out the Singing Hills website to learn more. Anyway, enough about me. Uh, So, Glenn, tell us about yourself.
1: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I do some other things, too. All right.
0: And Tom, Tom, uh, tell us about yourself and tell us about that background. For those of you who are... uh, you know, having or seeing this instead of just hearing it uh, on YouTube, uh, Tom has a special background today that I think ties in nicely with the subject of the show. So well, so why don't you go ahead, Tom, introduce yourself and just take us right into the show.
2: Okay, uh, Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach uh, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places, and yes, I um, have a spirited background. This is actually um, a genuine Dublin pub in J- Dublin and the name is on it if you can pull it in and at this moment I can't recall but it is one of the ones where the music uh, ga- the, the musicians gather frequently which is very common there anyway and they spend a lot of time celebrating, having fellowships, singing songs and, uh, you know, telling stories, poems, all stuff from the cultures and traditions uh, of the people that they uh, celebrate big. It is St. Uh, Patrick's Day here. And so it'll be a few days after by the time you get this. But I figured we could kind of have a little fun with this and just talk a little bit using kind of St. Patrick. St. Patrick's Day, Ireland, and some of its history, um, just to talk about uh, um, something um, dear to all of us: um, beer, <laughs> right, right, all right, and God, <laughs> right, God, beer, saints, um, and uh, and the gospel. Maybe that's a good way to put it. And uh, and so I'm going to spring off of a, a very fun and interesting book. If you haven't read it, and it's Stephen Mansfield is the writer historian. And the book is called The Search for God and Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world. And I do I believe it's on Nelson uh, Press, uh, Thomas Nelson. So um, it's it's really uh, one of those books that has a few elements to it that make it worth the read. Um, One, of course, is just for those curious about the life of uh, the Guinness, you know, Guinness beer and uh, the family uh, surrounding it and how it got going, the history of it. Um, another is for those who love the craft of beer. And there's a lot of emphasis on the spirituality of craft and work and vocation um, tied to their understanding of, of faith in the gospel. And then there is a excellent kind of survey, if you will, uh, of the history of beer, all the way back from kind of speculative origins to how closely connected it has been to the sacred, to religious, um, and, and especially to the way in which when uh, Christianity comes on the scene, Christianity doesn't throw that, that baby out with the, with the idolatrous backwater, but actually reorients it and, uh, and, and makes it a large part of festivity and the celebration of God's good. Um, but with with the right kind of proportion. So anyway, I'm gonna I, spring in if from I can there. Throw
1: something else, then, Tom? Yep. Just real quick. The other thing about the book that is worth noting is it is a fun read. Yes, this is not a ponderous tome at all. It, it, Mansfield's writing sparkles. It's it's just yes. a delightful book.
2: It is, and and there, there's a lot of uh, little little lines and quotes that uh, it, they're fun and. They're definitely good for conversations like the ones they would have back here. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so uh, I think what I was going to do is just kind of start with a few things that people don't know. And these are just straight from the book about um, uh, the Guinness family and maybe about Arthur Guinness. And I'm not going to get too much into the current um, Guinness situation, uh, although there is some interesting history. Uh, Glenn can uh, will talk about maybe a little bit later, but with uh, relation to Oscar Guinness and and uh, the the history of the family. Um, but one of the things is that, as he notes in the beginning, is the Guinness story is pretty much largely unknown in the U.S. Um, it's not something that is told often. And sometimes there's a little bit of a mythology about it that goes around, um, but a lot of people don't have a clue. And so they they drink Guinness, apparently, what is it? Is it 10 million pours a day? Is that correct? It's something along those lines. Okay. Um, so they're, they're, they have their fun share in it, but they don't know much about it. Um, but one of the other uh, interesting aspects of the book is just how impactful an understanding of the gospel and the wider service to the whole whole culture and common good was a part of, of the vision. And we'll get into a little bit of why that kind of uh, social responsibility coupled with a real gospel um, were outgrowths of kind of the, the spiritual formation of the Guinness family, especially since they were, um, they actually, uh, Arthur Guinness, uh, the, the one who got the whole um, St. James Gate um, uh, brewing <laughs> factory and I'm um, going, um, was actually raised on an estate by a minister. And I'm always proud of this because um, Arthur Guinness, his father, Richard Guinness, um, was the one who was a great workman um, and so great that Arthur Price my surname's Price. I, I'm kind of proud of that. Mm-hmm. Was it was Doctor Arthur Price? He was he was a uh, an archbishop. He had an estate, and he invited the Guinness family to come live and run it. And he was so impressed with them, he he really um, helped them kind of get themselves established, and gave them when he passed away a significant significant uh, uh, bit of income that they all used to kind of build their lives from. Um, but uh, another point that's always fascinating to me, and, and of course, it's just kind of personal quirky stuff, is that uh, this Richard um, Guinness, the father of author, he, he had outlived a few brides, but his third bride was Elizabeth Clare or Clary coming from Clary. And uh, that's where I get my price name as well, because they married a Grace Clary. So I'm not saying I'm directly tied to all this, <laughs> but it is a fun set of facts to kind of tie in when I'm a, as a big fan of Guinness.
0: Well, um, before, before you get any further there, Tom, let's, let's fill people in a little bit, because I think that when people uh, you know, think of Ireland, they think of Roman Catholicism. Uh, yeah. And because... Guinness is really popular uh, you know on the island there might be people who assume that there's a kind of Roman Catholic connection can you can you clear up a little bit in terms of the Archbishop and all that?
2: yeah um Archbishop in this case was with the Church of uh, Church of England um, and was on with it in it under its Protestant uh, side and um the sad history of Ireland is that the Catholics under English rule were not really allowed to own businesses or anything of that, like maybe 10%. I mean, it was a very small proportion. And actually the Guinness, Guinness family and Arthur Guinness, though Protestants, they they had a Catholic background way back, but um, though Protestant, they worked very hard to, to challenge those laws that did not allow Catholics to work. But it, this was definitely a um, a Protestant fr- family, um, the, the, um, uh, Protestant Irish church. And it was very influenced as we'll see a little bit later also by k- kind of the Wesley's and Whitfield and, and the kind of revival, um, spirit that was, was going around, um, at the time when he was, uh, young. And I, and I do believe the Wesley's actually visited the, the church, uh, uh, Price's, uh, congregation and gave sermons uh, that had a pretty significant impact. But yeah, this was definitely, um, they were part of the the kind of Protestant and uh, Reformation line. And one of the things that I think um, the author in the book is highlighting and emphasizing is that distinct kind of Protestant emphasis on spirituality and vocation. Um, and it's not only Protestants, but it was a highlight, of course, one of Luther's core things: moving the kind of sacred
0: into every aspect of our life. I guess, I guess, the thing that makes this kind of serendipitous, of course, is because the these these Protestants, um, evangel evangelistic or evangelical in nature, Protestants um, yeah. are, you know, their 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 brew is embraced by everybody. You know, it's not just, okay, that's the, that's the, you know, the drink that those guys make. We're not going to, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it has impact. And, And one of the things I think that was significant about that is it is the kind of embodied Christian faith that Guinness poured through his his life and work, um, the way
0: the way in which his, I like the, I like the way you, I like the way you use the the word poor there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I'll probably slip in a few accident, accidentally.
2: <laughs> <laughs> accidentally. Um, but one of the things, and, and they actually that, that is a line in uh, Mansfield used it too. He he says the core of Arthur Guinness' spiritual expression of faith was poured <laughs> into his notion of vocation as a sacred calling. His faith was aimed to inspire men to make their work in the world and offering to God to understand craft and discipline, love and labor and skills transferred from the father to son, uh, sacred things. So he did a lot of investment in in the relation of fathers and sons handing on crafts. And uh, but he did a lot. And maybe this is a good time to kind of give a little outline of that, um, because I want to take this in a little bit of a different direction. But uh, he notes in this, and this was written a few years back, that uh, nothing Microsoft or Google has done, as we know it, is even comparable to what the Irish uh, beer company has done for caring for people. And he he gives um, he gives this uh, really impressive list. Let me see if I can get some of the things up here um, from the beginning of their corp, the corporate corporation, and their family history, the Guinness family. Um, had had sought to to embody their faith in helping um, the needy in the world, and this began in their home and with their employees. And so, some of the things they did. This is 1928, where you're you're seeing these statistics. But they were paying on average 10 to 20 percent higher wage to their employees than anyone around. They allowed, and this was generous to, uh, what was it? Um, Two of. The uh, two pints a day of their famous dark stout, Um, they had two fully qualified doctors staffed in an on-site clinic where employees and families and widows and pensioners could receive treatment. Um, The doctors were available night and day and did house calls. They had two dentists available um, to employees, two pharmacists, two nurses, two home welfare checkers and a masseuse. So if (laughs) you were working hard or anyone in your family or um, so that was there, they had hospital beds that were provided um, both at the Guinness plant and then a sanatorium um, for people with uh, uh, recovering from tuberculosis. Retirees received pensions at the pleasure of the board and they didn't have to make any contributions of their own to them. Um, It extended to the benefits extended to widows. They also paid the majority of the funeral expenses of an employee or any of their family. Um, They had a savings bank on site that contributed to a fund from which workers could borrow and purchase houses. And they were really into the, the, the development of houses and education in households. Um, they sponsored competitions to encourage domestic skills, especially with the wives who were still working at home. They would give cash awards for sewing, cooking, decorating, gardening, gardening, and hat making. They provided concerts and educational lectures for the wives and workers. And they had the belief that the moral and intellectual level of the home would rise only to the level of the wife who lived there. So they really put a lot of emphasis on that. They sponsored Guilds and associations taught people how to breed dogs, how to um, poultry, pigeons, cage birds, cultivations of vegetables, flowers, and the encouragement of home industries. They had athletic union. Um, they supported the, a team, the Gaelic football, cricket, cycling, boxing, swimming, hurling, tug of war. Um, and then uh, they any of the kids ages 14 through 30, um, they would supply um Give them the resources to attend technical schools in Dublin and funded uh, more advanced education for those who were qualified. They had lending libraries on the plant where they made beer. They had uh, a a musical society, and then they had a a workman's leisure room where they could go. and They he wanted them to take breaks from thinking about work all the time, so they would have pints. They would have books and, and um, instruments and just different things. So I, mean, I'm, I imagine it ended up a lot like this background in those, in those leisure rooms. Um, they gave uh, classes in wood carving, cage making, fretwork, sketching, photography, handwriting, music, dancing. Um, they paid for excursions for families um, and they tra- the travel fare and the food expenses And on the jubilee of Queen Victoria, Guinness paid every employee an extra week's salary. And this is just what they did for the families. This isn't about all the things they invested in. Mm
1: -hmm. Keep in mind, this is in 1928. This is a period in which corporations were not noted for their generosity.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: So this is really... You know, and, and it goes back well before this, too. I mean, Dublin at one time was the unhealthiest city in Europe. Uh, life expectancy was low. There were all kinds of diseases rampaging through it. Guinness hired one of the first public health physicians, it, actually anywhere, to go and inspect the houses and to give them recommendations. And he gave mm-hmm. them a very, very long list of things that, that they could do to help clean up the city. And in fact, the board adopted every one of them, and that is the thing that more than anything else transformed Dublin into a, in a sense, a modern city—a city that you that was actually worth living in. Yeah, you know, I is... mean, the, the, the Guinness said once that in, in my hearing that the Guinness Corporation has done more good than any other corporation in history, and I think he's absolutely right. Yeah,
0: this is remarkable that several levels, um, one level being you know what was the kind of the norm of the norm of the time, which you just brought out, Glenn. Um, there's also a kind of uh, well, uh, I think uh, a question that you know sometimes people have in terms of the role of the Christian faith, particularly the evangelical faith uh, in our in our history and how, uh, how much we can attribute to it with regard to um, some of the, the improvements uh, in in just uh, daily life that maybe we spend more of our time attributing to, I don't know, um, kind of, uh, you know, the, the just progress and stuff like that. In other words, it's, it's not, it's, it wasn't just that this was all inevitable that, that you know, human society is just, progressing almost mechanically or necessarily. it's there are there is some there is some uh, human agency in here. This didn't have to be this way. These people did things because of their convictions. And so that's part of it but I also think as one of the things that would be fascinating to think about a little bit and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far but you know in the United States, particularly at that time, you know we have a very strong temperance movement in the in our country that <laughs> isn't about temperance it's about abstinence <laughs> yeah yeah and and there's zero room in the minds even today with regard to some christians for there's zero room for uh enjoying uh a pint you know yeah. If, in fact, this is crossing the line into the devil's den for many, many yeah. people, even to this day. So uh, it'd be good to think a little bit about those things. Well, but I think maybe that's
2: a good segue into the I, one of the, I think, fun parts of the book is where he traces kind of the history of the sacred in relationship to <laughs> beer um, in particular. I drink in general, but uh, and beer in particular. And, um, and he, uh, but one of the stories he does to kind of, um, Mansfield does to kind of set it up is he's talking about the pilgrims. Now, most people, imagery of the pilgrims are, these are definitely teetotalers who um, shied away from any anything. Uh <laughs> um, and and they, it, for again, because of the influence of maybe the temperance movement or, or people who just are the kind of products of it, they just kind of got, absolute devotion to God and 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 a love of beer just somehow cannot go hand in hand and the pilgrims would not be your on your map if that were the case Um, and he talks about the pilgrims who when they were first setting uh, ashore um, they um, started to I mean it was a very strong struggle and of course beer was uh, they had barrels of it barrels and barrels Um, And there were a lot of reasons for that. Some of it was water wasn't great. um, And you had less, you know, chances of getting certain things from it. So the the process of boiling and brewing and, and the alcohol killing things off. Um, but it, it would also supply a certain kind of nourishment, especially in, in ex, you know, very extreme situations that, that allowed them kind of to sustain themselves until they could set up and start building a place that was sustainable. So they brought a lot of it with them and they they actually end up similar to some of the Pur, Puritans end up kind of cutting their journey in relationship to, to evaluating how long they can survive with the beer amounts they have on the ship. <laughs> And um, and they were they were explicit in a lot of their writings that they didn't just drink only for its health benefits or because they could get sick drinking water, but they enjoyed it to the glory of God, and it, it was sustained community and fellowship. Um, but one of the things that the stories he he tells about is the pilgrims when they was noticing the natives staring at them when they were trying to set up camp in, in very um, threatening ways. Um, they were afraid they'd have their muskets close by. And um, the pilgrims had tried to approach them um, and kind of just kind of get to know them and they kind of got threatened, ran off. Um, and so they kept their their muskets close by not knowing what was gonna happen. Well, anyway, one day um, they're, they're out working March 16th, a mercifully warmer day than recent months as he's, he's telling the story. There was a standoff came to an end. Suddenly a tall muscular native strove out from the trees and began to approach. The pilgrims quickly took their muskets in hand. They were startled for the man coming was unsettling. He was painted, he was stark naked just about and had bow and arrow. Um, and so he carried this bow and two arrows and the pilgrims noticed that his hair was long and the back of his head was shaved. They had seen nothing like this back in England. So uh, you didn't have, have the hippies around, I guess. But <laughs> 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 um, and as startling as this Indian was to the pilgrims, it was happened that shocked him most. It's what happened that shocked him most. Um, the man neared, paused and shouted in perfect English. Welcome. Do you have any beer?" <laughs> 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 and this is the truth, true account, um, and that, that they were all astonished, they're like, how did they know English, much less did they know, they know beer, um, and this is the truth, and you likely didn't know it, because it's rarely mentioned in textbooks or on Thanksgiving specials, it's right here, though, in Mort's Relation and of Plymouth Plantation, the two primary sources we have of the pilgrim story, Um, The native's name was Samoset, and as he told his story, the pilgrims learned that he mastered their language while traveling with the English ships up and down the coast, and he had grown very fond of the English and accustomed to their ways and liked English beer. (laughs) Now, we won't fault him for that, but uh, but it's a fun story, and it's related, uh, of course, later to Squanto and the other stories we have. Um, and of course, that was part of one of the first encounters of fellowship um, between them was, was the celebration of having beer together. Well, and think, so, I think, yeah.
0: yeah. I think well, there's a strong kind of emphasis on uh, how uh, spirits, wine and beer, uh, have a way of making fellowship, uh, you know, easier, uh, enhancing it. Now, you know, obviously over drinking and tempers and stuff like that can, yeah, can also be a problem, but that can be a problem, I should say. But uh, I think, uh, you know, conviviality is something that we often associate with sharing, uh, sharing. spirits with each other. Yeah. And, and know, that
1: was just, one of the things, Glenn. I just ran into an article yesterday that uh, it was a report on some archaeological finds. Um, it turns out they're able to trace the brewing of beer back further than they used to than, than they had until recently. And in fact, it's now a, a crapshoot whether beer or bread came first.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that. It goes, yeah. it goes
1: they they've actually found traces of beer in hunter-gatherer, Neolithic hunter-gatherer societies prior to really a lot of agriculture starting to develop, just at the very beginning of the Neolithic.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's, uh, that's
1: interesting because uh,
2: Mansfield mentions uh, his story and uh, last name Katz. I, I don't remember his first name, but he was talking that it's very likely that civilization and the, the, the discovery of beer, as he puts it, um, went hand in hand. And one was mm-hmm. to generate this kind of fellowship and community. And we have to remember that beer had typically a lower alcohol content than the harder drinks. So they saw it as healthy, healthier than the people hitting the hard stuff. And when Christians came along, they actually, one of the arguments of the book is they probably tempered the alcohol content to be much more, more modest than, than the harder drink. So it was something you could enjoy, celebrate, but you weren't to abuse in ways that were unhealthy or socially and responsibility, you know, anything that uh, affected the, their social and responsibility.
0: So I've actually heard something to that effect with regard to the Guinness family and their story. Did you run across that in your reading, Tom? Uh, in um, other words, uh, whiskey and so forth, hard liquor, hard liquors with high alcohol content. Uh, the Guinness, you know, uh, family provided an, an alternative to that stuff.
2: It, yeah, they, he mentions in there something along those lines. Um, I don't know if he he mentioned it as being deliberate. Um, But it it wouldn't surprise me. And maybe I missed that if if it it is. But I think I remember him him mentioning um, something about that, that that it it provided uh, something that was better than the alternatives that were out there where people were. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the problems, of course, in the U.S., (coughs) the temperance movement was the abuse of it. And especially amongst the poor, where a good way to escape was just to get what money you had instead of taking care of your family. You went out and, you know just uh, commiserated with with other people in bad situations as people do with drugs today. Um, And so, yeah, they were trying to deal with that issue, but the the way they dealt with it by, by just uh, thinking, I mean, uh, I think it was, uh, I I think it's Luther's quote. He actually has a great quote by Luther in here because it was brought up at that time. And Luther says something along the lines, well, we talk about um, wine and we talk about women. He goes, but we don't tend to say that um, we will put off women altogether just because people abuse that. We just do it the right way. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. And
0: there are some, though, who did say we we won't have women at all. Of course, ascetics and stuff like that. But I think this ties into a larger theme that we've picked up on many times in the course of our show. And I think very, very last show on, on myth, we, we were kind of getting at this, the idea of, um, when we, when we have all these, uh, pagan stories, pagan practices, uh, we have, you know, uh, you know, the history of a, of a drink that has maybe even some roots in idolatry because i think that some of the stuff that that the archaeologists have discovered with regard to the connection between you know beer and the sacred had to do with idolatrous practices (laughs) the the neolithic
1: stuff that it's associated with burial practices for example but that usually has religious overtones yeah yeah but
0: but what what we're dealing with then is something where we could say okay we're just gonna completely uh divorce ourselves from from, from all this stuff. but there are so many practically practical problems with that approach that I, I just don't think if you're if you're if you're honest about it, you can actually do it because it what it means uh, is not simply, okay, we're going to not use alcohol. we're not going to whatever this or that. We're or we're not going to remember these old myths. What it means is that you have to and I think Tolkien makes this this point. Uh, Not in this way, but he makes the connection. Language itself would have to be completely re, you know, sort of reconceived from the ground up because every word (laughs) has an ability to be sort of, uh, you know, sort of, we can do the provenance and find its origin in a, in a pagan setting.
1: Today is Wednesday. It's named after Wotan or Odin, a Norse god.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And it's a, that's a yeah, great example.
2: And even the use of uh, Hebrew terms in Hebrew, Hebrew didn't fall right out of heaven. It, it, it's, it's a borrowing. Uh, well, some people. And, think you know, they, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. Like the King
1: James yeah. <laughs> <in> English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's also worth remembering that, although people never really pay much attention to this, Um, There are are multiple tithes that are in the Old Testament, and the second tithe was one where you were supposed to take 10% of your income, go to, well, what would amount to being Jerusalem, go to the place that the Lord your God designates, and use 10% of your income to have an absolutely blowout party. (laughs) And it says, if you can't bring your tithe, then you can convert it to cash Bring the money and then use it to buy whatever your heart desires. And along the list of what your heart might desire is, and I quote, beer, wine, or strong drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. old testament law. Yeah. Yeah. right. right. Yeah. And, and one of the things he's is neat in his
2: telling of the story is he is, yeah, I think it is an important part of story to, to talk. And I don't think this, again, in light of last week's conversation, I don't think this is kind of a, a, something that is. Should be seen only through the lens of of the negative, but but actually the the providential, and the preparatory is this relationship to a festivity, celebration, God's good creation related to the sacred, and um, when when paganism and false religions um, employ these things, they're not doing something. not doing something wrong by employing these things what they've done is they've wrapped them around around the idol right Mm -hmm. um and that but that does not mean that that what these things are created to be and how they're created to be used um does not still resonate even in some sense with its original purposes to which when the gospel comes and these these this uh this practice and this drink are sanctified if you will it can be now, as as the early Christians said, done unto the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And um, and and one of the things he notices is, is that is from the get go, this was this was considered almost a miracle they discovered it somewhat by accident, they believe. And all the people through different generations he highlights talks about that it's almost that we're doing something with the creation and the creator when we do when we produce this, this is something that it's kind of like the making a chocolate, how many steps you finally get to, to where you, you know, what they had to go through to develop this to finally arrive at that is stunning. It's another one of those kind of the miracles of discovery and, and human, I mean, we talked about sacrament is taking the grain and, and putting it together, the bread, the, the human kind of role in that. And so, um, but he does a nice history of that even the Greeks, who we always think of lo- lovers of wine, from the Egyptians picked up the craft of brewing and get brought it into to the Roman Empire. And this is where sort of Christianity um, really uh, encounters it. And he, he's got this quote, he goes, I find it interesting given the controversies over alcohol that would eventually erupt in the history of the church that the arrival of Christianity in the world and its eventual sway over the empire did not diminish the Roman love for beer. <laughs> in other words, the Roman... In Rome, all the Christians there were uh, early Christians, of course, like today, drunkenness is a sin, as the apostles taught, but not the consumption of alcohol. And after all, the Lord, you know, miraculously goes through the whole list, um, the sacred meals and, and that. Um, and then he goes through this kind of defense of, you know, beer and wine used in moderation were always um, welcomed by, by the main uh, Christians, early Christians. And um, But he talks about sort of the different um, theologians and different um, ministers and the different witnesses that Beer Fellowship have had together throughout Christian history. Now, there's a few things I'm going to move to. Go ahead. Do you have a point, Glenn? Yeah,
1: just, just a quick one. The, the temperance movement in the U.S. was caused by abuse of alcohol. At the time when the temperance movement arose, Americans were known globally for being a nation of drunks. So it reacted, it was a reaction to an overwhelming tendency within the culture to overdrink. Similarly today, for example, if you go to Mongolia, Christians in Mongolia will not touch alcohol. It's because alcoholism is so prevalent in the, in the culture. You know, so so this whole temperance thing really comes about because of an abuse of it, but yeah. in a lot of ways it's a hypercorrection.
2: Yeah. And it's yeah, and the abuse of it is is almost an idolatrous use of it again to to, to supply yeah. something which the, you know the creator is meant to, to fill rather than the drink. <laughs> and so by putting all of one's stock for one's comfort and and uh, and and uh, satisfaction in something like drink, one has already moved it into the realm of the idolatrous. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that is fascinating when you, see, you read even in this book just the history of how how important the craft of brewing, how each different area and a lot of the different theologians and, or uh, during the medieval period, different um, monastic traditions had beers named after them, mm-hmm. and eventually the church became the the largest distributor maker of beer distributor um, everywhere. And it was the Reformation that kind of changed this. And as the um, as beer started to move out of the kind of m- monasteries, this is when the taverns start to really take on. Even from the 13th century th- through 15th, he's talking about here. But this will kind of move into um, one of the things that uh, Glenn will kind of maybe take over here. He was talking about um, St. Patrick when he introduced the gospel to the wild and pagan land of Ireland. um, Always at his side was Mescan. Is that the name of his sidekick? M-E-S-C-A-N. The Great Saint's Personal Brewmaster. It seems that Patrick understood godly hasp- hospitality and captured many of the Irish tribunal chieftain with his tasty beer before he won their hearts for God. So his way was war- warming them up and having fellowship and community, and then sharing the gospel. Well,
0: <laughs> uh, you know that gives me thinking. I just gotta, I just gotta talk to my session about maybe giving me a budget for a personal brewer.
1: Well, you you know, Chris, um, when John Calvin was negotiating his salary uh, with the city of Geneva during his uh, exile in Strasbourg before they brought him back, one of the things he specified that he wanted in his salary was 500 liters of wine annually. and That's not even including the beer. Yeah. Well, yeah. And now, now, 500 liters is a lot. Actually, it's a little less than 500 liters. The technical name for the unit is a butt. So Calvin actually asked for a buttload of wine as part of his salary. Uh, but, you know, being fair, that was for his household and all of that. But he was French. Um, in yeah. his case, though, he did drink beer, but he was particularly fond of wine, especially white wine. So for oh, what hmm, it's worth. Interesting. Now, interesting. of course... I saw a sign in a uh, a pub in Billings, Montana, when I was there a while ago. It said, "Beer, because you don't solve the world's problems over white wine." <laughs> uh, so, you know, maybe I'll maybe i have uh, <laughs> gone yes. in a different direction there.
0: <laughs> That's great. Yeah.
2: Um, and so, and so, uh, that the, the St. Patrick's, uh, he mentions there was another saint associated with beer, uh, St. Bartholomew, who was the patron saint of mead drinkers, um, or those who drank beer fermented from honey. Um, St. Bridget was the famous Irish saint who labored in a leper colony and once asked God to turn bathwater into beer so that the lepers could enjoy the taste of brew. Um, <laughs> so that was another one, but, uh, this St. Uh, Colum, Columbanus, Okay, I think Columbus. that's how we say it. Yeah. Yep. Um, He was once came upon a gathering of pagans who were about to sacrifice a keg of beer to their their idol god. Their plan Their plan was to offer the keg on a sacred fire, but he began to preach, and it wasn't long before the the idol was kind of exposed. Um, as, as uh, having no, no real power, um, and afterwards he told the pagans, but the beer must always be received and kept, and it must be received with thanksgiving to the true God, and then it can be rightly and properly consumed, so here we have kind of what we're talking about, the sanctifying of a good gift Ordering it properly towards the creator with a thank, you know, everything given to the creator with Thanksgiving can be received and carried out responsibly. So you already see this different worldview in action when Christianity is encountering the, the other religions and
1: their abuses and their idolatry. It We could do an entire show on Columbanus. He is a really interesting character, but th- well, that would hold, have to hold off for another time. <laughs> Let's see here. I mean, there's
2: so many of these fun stories in here. Um, I may, I may just.
0: Uh, well, this brings there. up that sort of the, the I think a, a thing to think about, uh, those of us who enjoy beer and uh, enjoy it responsibly uh, when the, when the subject is brought up, you know, uh, you know, usually you see guys smile you know, there's a, there's a kind of, ah, yes, this is great. <laughs> and then there's the, this sort of uh, folklore that uh, surrounds the the making of it and the consumption of it uh, and these stories. And they, they generally are kind of fun. You know, there, there's a kind yeah. of amusement uh, or amusing point or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, amusing, uh, you know, uh, punchline or something like that. And uh, which, which, you know, kind of takes us, into the, the sort of the larger reality that even in our world today, when you think about a beer commercial, usually they're a lot of fun. You know, there's there's some kind of fun setup or joke that's being. Uh, but 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 this idea of the heart being glad, you know, this is a scriptural idea that uh, you know. Uh, these things. Well, you know the the old quote that's attributed to, to Franklin, which is apocryphal, I believe, mm-hmm. that uh, you know beer is evidence that God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If there was ever yeah, a I quote we, that you wanted to be true, but you know is it not, it's that one probably. But uh, (laughs) it'd be interesting to figure out just how that story, that sort of that was attributed to Franklin and where it actually comes from. But maybe maybe you know, Glenn, I don't know.
1: The answer is really simple to that. All you need to do is come up with a quote and attribute it to Franklin and it's going to get legs. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's as simple as that. (laughs) Yeah, well, he was the sort of guy you would say, yeah, he could say that. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But um, um, mm -hmm. anyway, go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. I didn't mean to cut you off.
2: Yeah, well, well, I was going to weave it over over. Oh, Glenn, you had another. No, point.
1: Go, yeah, go ahead, Don.
0: Okay,
2: weave it to uh, le- a little bit of. Uh, I'll wrap up with the kind of Protestant side, then we can return maybe to St. Patrick. I know Glenn has some some stuff maybe he could share with us on that. Um, one of the things he talks about in the book is kind of fun. he goes, uh he talks about how, of course, you know, Luther comes from Germany, which of course the 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 drink of choice is beer at this time. <laughs> Um, But it's important to know that his hometown of Wittenberg was a brewing center and his wife, Katie, was a skilled brewer at her convent before she left to marry him. And that in his day, every occasion of life from weddings to banking was graced by the presence of beer. Um, This was only good news to Luther. (laughs) Inviting friends to his wedding. Oh, which I didn't know the word bridal that we have comes from a merging of bride ale at a particular time in Christianity, when the brides would give ale to those who gave them wedding gifts, it was called oh, bride ale. I was thinking he was making it up, but apparently
0: he 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 oh. he was serious. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. You
1: know,
0: we, might, and, we need to, re, we need to re, there are certain things we need to revive. We need to revive certain yeah. <laughs> wedding practices, wedding traditions. But the fun part, and
2: I think maybe for this podcast, it kind of this kind of give us a little laugh, but it kind of makes a little sense. Is Luther spent much of his time in the taverns um, of Wittenberg, and not just because he liked to drink beer. He often mentored his students there. Mm-hmm. He studied there, and he met with his important visitors there. And upon occasion, he taught classes there. Now, see that I'm, I'm that where this <laughs> you talk about revisioning seminary education and theological education. I think Luther luther is a good example here
0: <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we gotta we gotta work with that somehow because you know we've been talking about uh offering more classes uh, online classes i know both of you guys have done it and uh yeah and we, we can figure out maybe a, a lutheran angle some kind of some kind of a lutheran uh kind of uh moniker that we could you know sort of attach to the classes we make or
1: I I think the other reason why Luther is in the tavern, aside from the fact that he grew up in a culture where that was just normal, is it was a way for him to keep his ear to the ground. Yeah, yeah. He he would know what people were thinking, what they were saying, and so on. And this gave him, well, I mean, a lot of Luther's ideas spread because he is an absolutely brilliant propagandist who used the colloquial German language. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they would he would produce these broadsheets and things like that, often with very colorful cartoons. And I don't mean literally (laughs) colorful, colorful (laughs) in the metaphorical sense that 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 they put up in taverns and people who are literate would read them. They were frequently in verse. They would read them to the rest of the people there. And this is part of how he spread his ideas. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And he, you know, he's mentioned, of course, converting old bar tunes to hymns. Mm-hmm. There's this very fu- fun pair. Oh, Chris, you had something you want to say?
0: No, no, I'm, I'm good.
2: Oh, okay. Well, the very fun paragraph here. And I, it's worth reading th- this because this it, it gives some of <laughs> the crass kind of wit that Luther has. Um, but, but one of the things he said, sometimes the people around him, uh, learning uh, around him could, you know, have a little bit too much. And he came up with a definition for drunkenness. He said, it's when the tongue walks on stilts and reason goes forward under half a sail. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but when he was criti- when criticized about having a drink or, or, or the like, he, he said, um, well, he, he understood beer as good for the body and aid to social life. And he's never ascribed to a dr- drunk into excess from those around him, but he considered it purely also a gift of God. And he has this great quote, if God can forgive me, For when I was a priest, crucifying him with masses twenty years running, he can bear with me for occasionally taking a good drink to honor him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things though, this this whole matter of can you hold your liquor, I think, is something to think a little bit about. Um, I think um, there are ethnic groups where it appears that um, you know, thinking about Mongolia, your example earlier, Glenn. Uh, aboriginal peoples, for some reason, uh, seem to be more, I guess, prone or uh, more, more likely to fall into drunkenness. So in the United States, with many uh, Native American tribes, this is a real problem. You know, it it genuinely is. But you know, we've joked a little bit about our ancestors and where we're from, you know, Finns and Scots-Irish and stuff, you know, Germans and and how it it's it's sort of a, the kind of the, the alcohol tolerance appears to be pretty high. Yeah. You know,
1: and it's actually a genetic thing. It has to do with something I think it's called alcohol dehydrogenase, which allows you to break it down in your body. And there are certain ethnic groups that don't produce a lot of that. And as a result, they're more susceptible to alcoholism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I think is something to kind of temper our conversation here a little bit, because Mm -hmm. they're like, you noted earlier about the, you know, the folks in Mongolia and the problems that they're facing there. I I have no idea what their DNA is like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it it sounds like perhaps this is a problem for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, for example, in my family, um, the, the tolerance, you know, I was, you know I've got a couple of sons who enjoy uh, alcohol drinking and so forth. and the the level of uh, tolerance, at least as far as I can see, is pretty high, pretty high for me. But I also wonder a little bit too, about how um, virtue and the exercise of self-control kind of plays into this more generally speaking. my my personal theory, and I got nothing to work with apart from just this kind of makes sense to me and kind of kind of, you know sort of, fits my experience with people. Uh, There just are people who kind of overdo it with a lot of things. And it's kind of like whatever the thing is, they just kind of overdo it. Um, And so that maybe there's a kind of, and again, don't take me as saying this is absolutely the case. This is just an idea. So I'm thinking out loud, Hmm. but maybe there's just a kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, a a kind of uh, tendency in some people to, uh, to abuse pleasurable things, whether we're talking about sex or alcohol or tobacco or you know, any of these things that um, in the course of our lives we're going to have an opportunity to, to, to use or imbibe or to, uh, to engage in. You know, just a general thought. And if, if that's the case, then zeroing in on a particular set of things, yeah. might be helpful in one respect but misses the larger point if you know what i mean
2: yeah i mean i think the the virtue vice thing is definitely i mean something christians have have always tried to not always but have tried to to be the field on which enjoying the good things of creation with that right kind of proportion and moderation and then there are people um in the past and and in the present who who yeah they they gravitate towards these things in extreme ways, um, we may understand some of the genetic reasons and the, the psychological reasons, sin reasons uh, um, that make us want to, to find that joy and happiness, which these things do give some, but we want to try to extract only what God can give from it. And then we keep trying to get that from it and it won't deliver. And there, that's where I think our kind of malformed loves. I mean, it's, Augustine always spends time talking about not clinging to the creaturely in that way. It's not to be used that way. Um, and so, I mean, I, I was just seeing here that the Calvin's uh, quote when talking about drink in particular too, is the use of gifts of God cannot be wrong if they are directed to the same purpose for which the creator himself has directed them and created them and destined them. And what happens is when we do abuse them and we, we, or we, you know, what we call nouns, they become addicted to them. We've, we've kind of pulled back from the good purposes of why they were created and what they're destined for. And so they aren't to re- being received with thankfulness and, and used um, in a way that is what they were created to be for us. And so we do, You know, And so, yeah, I don't want to minimize by talking about the goods of it and minimize that there are people and families and houses and homes have been destroyed by its abuse. Um, But we're talking more here just like, you know, just like idolatry ruins just about everything it touches. It's ruining our culture and society right now.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really kind of kind of caught my attention uh, was uh, a lot on this particular subject, particularly on the aboriginal sort of angle or sort of this dimension of it. Is I saw a uh, a documentary uh, entitled "Happy People," and it's uh, it's uh, by that German uh, documentary guy. I'm just trying to remember his name, but anyways, it's about the taiga, you know, which is like the Siberian wilderness, and it's about uh, some old uh, uh, Cossacks who who went out into the taiga uh, and are trappers now. And so these are people who are ethnically Russian living out in this part of, you know, the world in Siberia. And I had I had no idea that this was the case. But apparently there are native peoples in that area that are somewhat like the American Native Americans in the sense that they were the original inhabitants. And the Russians are just like, you know, Europeans, you know, in, the, in North America who who have moved into this region uh that is not native their native uh territory and in that place you know we know that russians love to drink but uh the alcoholism with regard to these aboriginal peoples is just off the charts compared to what it is for these russian uh people who live in the same area so it just got me you know wondering about kind of what you talked a little bit about uh, glenn genetics
1: and stuff like that Yeah. Mm. You know how they make vodka in Mongolia? How's that? It's over fermented yogurt that they will distill. Interesting. That that was, that was, they seemed shocked that anybody would make it out of potatoes. (laughs) 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 Um,
0: Those poor Russians, they have to resort to potatoes. (laughs) Interesting um, stuff. So, Glenn, do you want to tell us a little more about St. Patrick since uh, we're probably at, probably about, you know, we're kind of actually getting close to the end of the show here. But so we better f- say something about Saint
2: something that. about Patrick. It's all <laughs> yours.
0: And the, and the Celtic cross, if you will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, right, right.
2: Well, we may have yeah. to do that more
1: fully at another time, but maybe. Yeah. Introduce. OK, well, um, you know, Patrick uh, isn't Irish. This is going right. to be one of those things that will be a shock to a lot of people from Ireland. He was actually from Britain. um we're not sure exactly where possibly wales possibly in england possibly southern scotland somewhere around there um but he was taken in a slave raid and brought to britain Uh, excuse me brought to ireland yes and now here here this this, i think we'll do a show on this but Mm -hmm. The Druids were not these sort of nice little nature priests with golden sickles who harvested mistletoe and did all sorts of of, uh, wonderful things. It was actually a very, very long and difficult process to learn to become a Druid. You had to master everything in the culture and, and so on. Patrick apparently was sold to a Druid. He was taken to Northwestern Ireland where he learned the language, learned the culture, probably learned a lot from the Druid about how things work in Ireland. And then worked as a shepherd for a while. At this point, he had to come to Jesus moment, if you can call it that. He was lamenting the fact that he was not very faithful and all of that in Britain. And so he began praying. He said, I prayed up to 100 times a day, which I mm. think means he said the Lord's Prayer. Um, but then he got a vision that told him to: it was time to leave, start walking. And he walked diagonally from the, northeast to the northwest to the southeast of Ireland without getting caught as a runaway slave. Managed to talk his way onto a ship, got back to England, swore to his parents he would never leave again, and then he had a vision of someone in Ireland, possibly his old uh, uh, owner, uh, saying, holy boy, come help us. And he took this as a call to go back to Ireland. Hmm. So much to his family's uh, chagrin and objections, he went to France, studied to become a priest, and then went to Ireland. His first Splash in Ireland came about because by law in Ireland, no one was allowed at this one particular festival. No one was allowed to start a bonfire until the bonfire was started at Tara, the high king's residence. So what would happen is the high king would start the bonfire. And when you saw the bonfire at Tara, you could light yours and so on. And think think the Lord of the Rings, you know, how the beacons light up on mountain to mountain to mountain. That's how it would spread across Ireland. Well, Patrick decided that he really needed an inn at the royal court. So what he did is he went to a place called the Hill of Slain. And by the way, the tune for Be Thou My Vision is named after that. It's Slain. Hmm. Uh, He went to the Hill of Slain and started a bonfire before the king started his, in sight of Tara. Hmm. So the king got really upset and said, find out who lit that fire. And they went and got him and brought him in. And that's when he began preaching. Hmm. And it turns out he didn't get a lot of success at first, but he got one convert, at least, a guy named Eric, who was a Druid, hmm. one of the priests. And like I said, I think i will do another show on this later. But Eric will end up founding a monastery on the Hill of Slain. Interesting. And from there, it turns out, and again, we'll, we'll explore this in a future show. It turns out that a lot of Patrick's initial converts came from the Druids. Wow. As well as the children of of noblemen, hmm. and you, he he developed a totally different system of church organization, custom designed really for Ireland, that was totally separate from what was going on on the continent. Now, with
0: regard to the conversions uh, from from the Druids, do you have any thoughts on what was going on there? What made them open?
1: Celtic religions in general were very nasty things. They involved human sacrifice and things like that. Maybe not regularly, but anytime there was an emergency situation, they would sacrifice people. Hmm. I think, I have no proof of this, but given what I know about ancient Celtic religions, I think that the core thing that really got them is Patrick saying something to the effect of, your gods demand that you sacrifice your sons to them the true God sacrificed his son for you. Mm. And I I really think that, like I said, I can't prove it. I have no documentation on that. But what I know about the religion and what I know about Patrick, Mm. I strongly suspect that was the the reason. The Druids, who, like I said, were experts in pretty much everything in the culture, understood the limitations and sort of the dead ends of where it went more than the common people did. And so when they saw this alternative that Patrick was presenting to them, they realized just how much more it had to offer. Yeah,
0: and and I think sometimes the romantic, the way we romanticize in the modern world, the pagan world, you know, mm. Druidism, whatever, you know, neo paganism is a is a Christianized paganism. Right. You know, it's not the it's not the real in the real deal. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. 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 Well, well good stuff. I,
1: I'd like to jump ahead uh, a, a century or so where, and again, we'll talk more about this later, but you asked about the Celtic cross. Yeah, yeah. Let's, it, okay, it'd the be Celtic a good cross, to... for those of you, this will just take a couple of minutes. For those of you sure. who don't know, the Celtic cross is the cross with the circle in it you see on the top of all kinds of churches, Presbyterians, uh, Anglican, and so on. That started on the island of Iona, which was um, colonized by St. Columba not Columbanus different guy Columba and he used that as a jumping off point to evangelize Scotland and then Northern England and the okay the 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 pre-Irish pagans who lived in Ireland and yeah there were some used to erect these standing stones that were used we don't really know why but they were used almost certainly for worship and certainly the Irish pagans used them for worship the Christians originally seemed to have put up large wooden crosses. Well, at Iona, they decided that they were going to set up their own standing stones, except they were going to do them in the form of a cross. Now, the problem is the first of these, the St. John's cross, the arms on the cross weren't stable. The strong, stone wasn't strong enough to hold them, so they broke off. And actually, you can see the remains of Saint, the St. Saint John's cross in Iona at the museum there. But from there, they developed a Celtic cross. So you got your cross. This is originally set up in high crosses, these these large stone crosses. And by putting the circle there, it helps hold up the arms. But there's a reason why they picked that circle. If you take just the circle with the cross inside it, nothing projecting out the sides, that was an ancient pagan mandala, a symbolic representation of everything that exists in the world. The upper arc represented the heavens, the lower arc represented the underworld, the middle line between the two represented middle earth in the middle between the the heavens and the underworld. And the vertical line was the world tree. We know this best from Norse mythology is Yggdrasil. So it ties together, its branches are in the heaven, its roots are in the underworld, it goes through middle earth. It's the thing that ties the universe together. But it goes beyond that. The branches in the heavens represent celestial wisdom, The roots in the underworld represent ancestral wisdom and tradition. So it also represents the sources of knowledge. But it's more than that, it's also a compass. Uh, On the compass, the east is, um, excuse me, the, the, um, I'm trying to, as you're looking at it, on the left hand side, you have the east, on the top, you have the south, on the left, the west, and on the bottom, north. North is in the, that sector you associate with the underworld because it tends to be darker there in the northern hemisphere. The south is where the sun tends to hang out. So the south is on top with this it's celestial. So it's a compass as well, but it also represents time. So to the east, you have dawn. To the south, you have noon. To the west, you have sunset. And to the bottom, north, you have midnight but it's also a calendar, spring, summer, fall, winter. It's also your life, birth, youth, maturity, old age. So it represents days, years, lifetimes. It represents heaven, the earth, the underworld, and all of this tied together. It represents knowledge, all sources of knowledge, everything else. At Iona, That When they're constructing these high crosses, they decide to use that symbol, which anthropologists call it the the sun symbol or the sun cross, because they think it represents the sun. If you actually talk to people from indigenous, still existing pagan religions from Northern Europe, like the Slavic peoples, which is where I learned this from, it's much more than that. It's this entire mandala. So what happens when you take the cross of Christ and put the sun cross on it? Or better yet, take the sun cross and superimpose Christ's cross on it. What are you saying? You are saying that Christ is Lord of space and time. All the four com- com- corners of the compass are under his authority. Heaven, the earth, and the underworld are under his authority. Your days, your years, your lifetime is under his authority. He's the the. The logos, the source of all celestial wisdom and all that's good in ancestral wisdom, and he rules over all of this from the world tree, which is the cross. Yeah, that's great. And then the the Celtic cross is a complete worldview in one symbol. Yeah, that's that's
0: marvelous. Now, any thoughts about what you know when we think about the cross? Of course, the the points of the cross extend beyond the circle. Anything to that in terms of reflections?
1: Well, I, I think that that the reason for that is they they took the sun cross, as it's called, and deliberately put the cross of Christ over it so that when you looked at it, the first thing you saw was the Roman cross. Right. And, but, and then, you know, the fact that it's larger, that it extends beyond it, it encompasses everything that's in the Celtic cross. And again, Christ as Lord, he rules over all of this from the cross.
0: That's a great place to end the show (laughs) because we have come to the end of our time. And uh, but a great way to, to, and maybe, you know, as you noted, Glenn, maybe we can pick up this again sometime and kind of elaborate even more uh, about it or
1: upon it. One one quick note, this ties directly into what we said last time about pagan mythology and how it needs to be Christianized. This is, this is a concrete example.
0: Yeah, that's great. Tom, do you want to say anything as we wrap up? This was your show.
2: No, it it was great. I liked where it ended up. Um, It was kind of meant to be a little bit fun for the day and, and, you know, celebratory in many ways of the way the gospel has basically come into the world and has to do with everything and is ordering it back
0: towards its creator the right way in Christ. Great. Great. Well, um, as we wrap up, I just want folks to know that, you know, today's show and our last show, uh, we, uh, uh, you know, conducted the the shows on Zoom. We recorded them, but we're actually going to be together again. The band is getting together again, <laughs> and uh, we're going to be recording four shows in Connecticut. And if you live in Connecticut and would like to be uh, at the shows uh, when we record them, you're welcome. Uh, we're going to be back at the Artisanal Burger Place, that where we've recorded our our, our more recent shows in the past. And that's uh, I think it's in South Windsor or, uh, or the or Manchester. It's on the line. It's over by the the Manchester. Uh, the Buckland Mall. So we'll be there and we'll be there on Wednesday, uh, March 24th at three in the afternoon to record two shows. And then we're going to be back there on the 30th, Tuesday, the 30th. Uh, but we'll be re- beginning that show, uh, recording at 3:30. but we'll be there, uh, as I said, at back at the artisanal burger joint, uh, for two more shows to record beginning at 3 30 so if you're in the area and you'd like to sit in on those you're you're welcome to do that we'd love to have you it's great to have a studio audience as we as we talk anyway thanks again though for listening to the theology podcast thank you for supporting it thank you for telling your friends about it Uh, we continue to grow new new uh listeners all the time and, and we uh we don't take that for granted at all so again thanks a lot and bye bye I know.